0: We're going to be reading in Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 11. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him, stricken him, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, we have turned, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to this slaughter, and like a sheep, that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. make many to be accounted righteousness or righteous and he shall be their iniquities this is the word of the lord
1: Well, thank you, Bronwyn, uh, for reading that to us. As Bronwyn said, if you don't have a Bible, we have them for you. Uh, We'd love you to jump into them with us so you can follow along and know the story. As we did last week, we tried to cover four chapters in Acts. We had a lot of fun. You can find all of the audio uh, for our sermons online uh, through iTunes and our podcast there. Uh, And today we're going to try to do another three chapters. And what we're really trying to do is land the plane uh, before we get into the Fall because in the fall we're going to be talking about what the church is specifically uh, the grand story of the of the of the church. So what does the Bible say that the church is? What are we called into? And then specifically, how do we do that at Church of the City? And what are we trying to do here in the city of Guelph as we pray? As you've seen on this on the screen, in Guelph as it is in heaven. And that is our prayer that the kingdom of God would be among us here and throughout the city. So that as people who do not know and love Jesus come in contact with us, they begin to experience what heaven will be like on the other side. Now, the events of the last week and a half, um, I don't know about you, but it sits quite heavy on my heart. Uh, Starting in Charlottesville, you think about what's going on in the Middle East. All of these things are experiences that some of us maybe feel like we connect to more than we connect with others. But nonetheless, they are examples in which humanity has created walls and barriers between one another. And if you've been disappointed in humanity this week to a new level, as I have been, while we've been disappointed, it's also a reminder, and that is my prayer today, that is a reminder that our hope needs to be in Jesus. That if our hope is in people, if our hope is in systems, if our hope is in government, these things will fail. And the only hope that we have, as the scriptures call us to, is that we have a hope in Jesus Christ that Jesus has overcome death. He's overcome the grave so that we can spend eternity with him and begin to experience a different life now. And I struggle with this. And if you struggle with this, you're not alone. So welcome Church of the City. We're glad to be together today and as we read the scriptures, as we open them together, my hope is that we are reminded yet again of how good our God is amidst the pain and the suffering that we see in the world, and that we can put our hope in Him and not our hope in people, systems, but that our hope can truly be in Jesus Christ. Sound good? With that in mind, let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is our desire that we would know you more. And so I pray this morning that as we read your word, as, as we study what was going on in the life of Paul, as he begins to come up against serious opposition, that we would be encouraged in, in our world, in our setting, where, Lord, sometimes it feels like we've been come up against serious opposition. So, God, maybe for some of us in this room, it's disappointment with a people group. It's disappointment with humanity in general. Maybe it's disappointment with you. God, we want to be honest about that. And so I thank you that Jesus, that we see his faithfulness and your faithfulness through him in coming to earth and living the life we could not live and and dying the death that we should have died so that we can have a secured hope and a future. And I thank you that even in the midst of the brokenness of the world that we find ourselves in, that you still can work in the midst of that and bring good things out of it for your glory. And so God, we pray that right now. In church, of the city, in, in, in our nation, in the states, God. May we look to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week uh, we focused in on a text in Acts 20. And it was a text in which Paul uh, sends words to the Ephesian elders to come to a place called Miletus. And he says, come, I need to meet with you. And part of the reason he wants to do that, as we talked about last week, is he wants to instruct the Ephesian elders. But at the same time, he also wants to say goodbye. And we read this, and this is sort of going to be a bit of an introduction to where we're going today. So if you have your Bibles, Acts 20, you can go with me Uh, To to verse 22, Paul says this, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. We talked about that last week. His his Spirit-ledness, His Spirit-filledness, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Now, many of us, if we're honest, if the Spirit of God were were leading us to believe that in the future we might be imprisoned and inflicted, if we go ahead, a lot of us would say, I'm out. Paul here is so moved by the Spirit that he says, the Spirit of God is leading me to Jerusalem and I know that I'm going to be in prison and I know that I'm going to be afflicted. And he's asking them for prayer. Prayer. So now, as we turn the page and we go to Acts 21, we're going to be starting in verse 17, Paul is now in Jerusalem. Uh, The first 16 verses of chapter 1 is Paul's journey to Jerusalem. And now Paul is in Jerusalem. And immediately upon arriving in Jerusalem, Paul goes and he meets up with James. And so if you have your Bibles, as I hope you do there, here's verse 17. When he had come to Jerusalem... The brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all of the elders that were present. After greeting them... He related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, you see brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to their customs. Now there is a whole lot going on beneath the surface here, so as we enter and Let me describe it to you. Paul is known as the apostle who was to go and evangelize the Gentile world, those that were not. Jews, And if you've been following the storyline of Acts with us, you'll know that there was enormous controversy for the Jews in what it looked like for Gentiles to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And one of those things was the topic of circumcision. The Jews, one of the things they would do is that they would circumcise their male children. It was a sign that they were part of the Jewish line. And so a huge thing that is going on here is Paul. is they've just heard stories of the, of the work that Paul has been doing amongst the Gentiles and how they've come to faith. So he returns. James, on the other hand, has stayed in Jerusalem and has been evangelizing the Jewish world in Jerusalem. So what we're to be introduced to, if we're to summarize it, is that Paul and James represent two Christianities. One that's been prominent amongst the religious Jewish population, Paul one that has been represented amongst the Gentile population. And what we're introduced here, which is somewhat interesting, is that Paul comes back and he testifies all of the work that God, through the Holy Spirit, has been doing in the Gentile world. And we read here that, that James celebrates that. But we also see that some rumors have been spreading about Paul and what Paul has been teaching to the Gentile believers. And one of those things was that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's not a requirement for you to be circumcised. And the Jewish Christians were saying, no, they need to be circumcised. They want to get the rules right. And and you'll remember maybe that Pastor James here at Church of the City, not the James here, taught about this a number of weeks ago, the, the council that happened in Jerusalem for them to solve this. But what is, what is happening with Paul as he enters into Jerusalem? Well, Paul is being, being reminded of, of the controversy that surrounds who he is, not just amongst people that don't love Jesus, but also amongst those who claim that they do. That, Paul, there are some Jews here that don't think you're legitimate. If you remember last week, the same thing was brought up against Paul that we talked about. They're, they're, not, they're concerned that you're not following the law as we have been instructed to follow the law. And so what James requests of Paul is that he goes through a purification ceremony. In the following verses, you can read about this. So, Paul, would you please go uh, through the purification ceremony? And then would you also pay the expenses of the brothers that you've brought with you? So Paul is traveling with other Gentile believers who have come to know Jesus and are now followers of the way or Christianity. And so you would think Paul could either get really difficult with them and be like, Guys, come on now. We're beyond this. Don't you remember the gospel? It's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done for us. But what's really, really interesting here is Paul doesn't make it an issue. And he says, okay, I'll do it the question and and what's going on here is that they're not struggling with doctrine as far as the essentials. They're struggling with some difference that they have as far as their cultures and practice. And the application that I think we need to make today in which many people who do not follow Jesus, and you might be here and you don't follow Jesus, and you struggle with this around Christians is what would seem to be the enormous divide between... Christian churches You see a, a denominational connection here with one church and another denominational church. You kind of wonder, are they all part of the same thing? If you were to kind of flip it on us, if you were to see multiple mosques in the city of Guelph, and they all seem sort of different, you'd wonder, wouldn't you, Is it the same? Or is it different? And so the same thing is going on here. And there's a quote that's historically attributed to Augustine, and he says this. He says, in essentials, unity. So he's first saying, in the things that are, well, you could define, if they're not followed, could be heretical. He says unity. In essential doctrines, unity. He then says, in non-essentials, liberty or freedom. Allow some liberties. But then he says, in all things, charity. Now, I think Augustine is on to something here, if I'm to be honest. I think Augustine, in saying charity, he's saying that in the way that we relate to one another in our differences is going to tell the world how much we love Jesus. Right? And the scriptures say this how well we love our brothers is a testament to how our relationship with God is and how healthy it is. And as I was engaging in in bike riding yesterday, I just sensed the Spirit of God was was saying to me about the various churches in Guelph here a a word of like, we're on the same team. Period. We're on the same team. It's not that if one church just, you know, kind of has a ton of people and the rest are struggling, that, that we stop and go, well, amazing, the, the one church. I mean, in some ways we can go, great, the Spirit of God is doing something. But does that mean the Spirit of God isn't doing something somewhere else? And would it not be something if everybody was doing well? As, as one strength and another got stronger, wouldn't that be cool? Because if we're all growing, if we're all growing in strength, if we're all really the same church which we are, by the way. If, though, if you're struggling to believe it, if, then I think that would be an amazing thing. And I think our city would look at the church in a different way and say, wow, like, people that follow Jesus, there's something to their, the way. (laughs) There's something to the way of Jesus. There's something about that kingdom and so I don't know what it is for you in, in your life, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that is, that is hopefully a non-essential that you struggle with giving some liberty to. And you might ask me the question, well, Matt, what do you, why, why denominations? And, and I'm not here to argue for or against denominationalism today. I think there's some very good reasons why there are some distinct differences. But simply to say that those things don't divide us where we begin to see ourselves as soul temples that do not relate to the rest, or a soul tower. Like, it's it's my desire, and I struggle with this, that as I drive by every church building in the city, that I'd stop and pray for them. My practice now, every time I drive by War Memorial Hall, I pray for War Memorial Hall. I pray that God would continue to use what he's doing here through the ministry of Church of the City. But Maybe I just need to turn my radio off every time I go by every church and say, God, we thank you for your people that, are, that gather there and we pray that your kingdom would come in their church. Because if we're going to pray in Guelph, it is, it is in heaven. That's going to mean everybody playing together. Amen? Yes. Let's keep going. So Paul agrees. He says, yes, I will change my practice in this way so that I can have maybe greater credibility amongst the jews here verse 27 things start to get intense remember what we read read about in chapter 20 when the seven days were almost completed the jews from asia seeing him in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him crying out men of israel help this is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And listen to this. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. This isn't fact. They supposed. Maybe he did because we saw him in other places. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. We, some of us have seen images on television the past week of, of riots. The city is going into a riot. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of a cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion So get this, these Jews from Asia who are supposed to be the ones that believe in Yahweh are the ones creating riot, yet the Romans, those who not follow the way of Yahweh, are the ones that protect him. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Just picture yourself being there. It says all the city was stirred up. This is an intense situation. Now why is it so intense? Well, the Jews mentioned two things. One of which being is this guy doesn't follow the Mosaic Law. Now is that true? You'll remember, if you know the story of Jesus, that they also said the same thing about Jesus. That he doesn't teach the Mosaic Law. That he actually speaks against the temple. But what was Jesus really claiming? He's saying he's the continuation of the Mosaic law. He has the continuity of language of the temple and its sim- symbolic nature. Paul's doing the exact same thing. Then the second thing they have against him is that he would bring an outsider, a non-Jewish person, into the temple. And why do they think that? Because they've created a rumor about it. So one, they've misrepresented Paul in what he actually stands for. And two, they believed a lie about him. That's not actually true. It's actually said that if you study the history here, that if a Jew were to bring a Gentile into the temple, the Roman guard actually gave permission for the Jews to do whatever they wanted with that person. And they could actually have the permission to kill them because they were part as a Roman province. The Jews were permitted to do that. So the situation that follows here is not unlike what might have happened if a Gentile had actually gone into this place, if he was invited in by a Jew. But as you can see here, Paul is under intense misrepresentation and rumor. That's all it is. Let's see what happens next. He's rescued by the tribune. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, "'May I say something to you?' And he said in response, "'Do you know Greek?' Listen to this this is this is really funny. You just got to see it. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Now the tribune is believing false things about him. We've heard rumors of this Egyptian that led a revolt and that is historically accurate. So he is now misrepresenting Paul. Are you not that person? Paul replies, Paul replies, I am a Jew. From Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, And then Paul goes into this speech now to the Jewish people defending himself. But I think what we need to start with, if we just read this here, is that maybe some of the themes here have come up for you. Have you ever been someone who's been convicted in a situation where someone misrepresented you? Or in which you said something, and someone took it completely out of context, and you bore the brunt of what they shared? Or have you been ever someone who somebody else has lied against. Because if we read what's happening here, this is exactly what's going on for Paul. He's being misrepresented, and there's been rumors spread about him that are not true. So the question is, for follower of Jesus, what do we do in the face of misrepresentation and rumor? Matthew 10, verses 17 to 22, this is Jesus' teaches. He says, Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. And at that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated for everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. There is some intensity that comes with following Jesus. But then how do we respond? Here's a word on response. 1 Peter 2, verses 19 to 24. For it is commendable, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Ooh. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Well, the answer is not responding in violence. The answer is not respond to violence and with more violence. The answer is you seek another way. That there must be a third way to respond. If we're to look at historical events or historical protests, I think we can learn so much from Dr. King and the way that he led the movement that would lead to the civil rights movement. He did not go and say, let's get some guns. He said, we'll be tactical. We'll respond as we need to in this moment, but we're going to do it differently than the way that we are being attacked. Dr. King, you might remember, he was a preacher, he loved the way of Jesus. This is what we're being called to. Now Paul's defense in verses 1 to 21 of chapter 22, he defends himself by saying, I do not oppose the Jewish faith. He says, I am Jewish. I do not oppose it. And two, the change of my faith was not brought on by me or my own ideas, but it was through the revelation and heavenly intervention. This was not my idea to just kind of switch things up. This is something that's brought on by Yahweh, the God that you believe and trust in. That's why I'm switching. Because of Him. So what's the response to Paul's message up to this word? which in verse 21, the word about him going to the Gentiles to share with them the good news of Jesus. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their clothes and flinging dust in the air. Sometimes I read the Bible and I'm like, Wow, what a detail to include. Throwing off their cloaks, dust in the air. They're upset. I haven't thrown dust in the air. Like... In a long time, maybe since I was a child. You ever seen a child like pick up like dust when they're mad and go, That's what these people are doing. They're so childish. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Look who's protecting him again. The Roman tribune, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out over the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? So what happens next, okay? So we start in the temple area. A riot begins. The tribune, the Roman tribune, enters in, pulls him out to protect him, right? He then says, "Can I, like, say something? Sure, go ahead. He, he gives a speech. People get upset again. They start their clo- throwing their clothes off. Who protects them? The Roman tribune, the pagan. The not Jewish believer in Yahweh protects him yet again. And as Paul is being laid out and preparing him to be whipped, he says, Are you allowed to do this to a Roman citizen? Which is his Roman citizenship, would have been brought from his father. And we're not sure total details of here, but whatever the details are in the history, it meant that he didn't need to be whipped here. He could not, he actually had to be tried by proper way. So the tribune here, his name's Claudius, he decides, okay. I want to find out what issue the Jews really have of him. So the next stage is he says, I'm now going to take him before the Sanhedrin, the council. And so now Paul is brought before the council. Okay, and so that's the next section. So verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by, obviously it's an issue. Would you revile God's high priest? The pinnacle of religiosity, our symbol? And Paul said, (laughs) I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, there is some commentators. Let's just find the humor in this. There are some commentators like, what was Paul thinking? You can't speak that way. What? most, where, where, there's different ideas, but the one that I think has most credit is that Paul actually, if we, we know this, he struggled with eyesight. So it's believed that as Paul was brought forward, he actually didn't know who he was speaking to. So when he calls him a whitewashed wall, he's like, uh-oh, crossed the line there. Shouldn't have done that. Now it's interesting to compare this trial with Jesus before the high priest and Paul's. Jesus, we, he, he doesn't do something like this. So Paul is a a human, Jesus was a human too, but Paul is a man that's struggling with sinful attitudes, sinful behavior. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, those in the council, and others Pharisees, he cried out to the councils, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge it to be the case. So now what's going on? So now Paul is before the council. He now speaks to them. And in a way, he creates the divide in the middle of the council because he starts speaking about the resurrection of the dead. And as we'll find out in the following verses, the Pharisees respond to this and are like, maybe we should listen to Paul more. The Sadducees are enraged. They're like, how dare this man speak like this to us or even teach these sorts of things to our people. And then in verses 12... Right down to verse twenty two, we read that these men devise a plan that they will not eat nor sleep until they can kill have Paul killed. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by those neither to eat nor drink. Sorry, eat or drink, not sleep, they probably slept. Eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There was more than forty who made this conspiracy. Now the next day Paul is to come before the the bigger council to be tried. And this plot makes its way back to Paul and then to the tribune Claudius again. And the plot to kill him was an assassination that on his way to the council, the Jews are going to kill him amongst these narrow roads. And it's found out, and so what Claudius says is, his response is Then he called two of the centurions and said, this is verse 23, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Jump down to 31. So the soldiers, according to their instruction, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is now the third time that the pagan Romans have protected Paul. This is amazing. Now, this now just sets us up for what is to come but as we consider what's going on here let's consider I think this really important point that many of us forget in the midst of trial in the midst of suffering in the midst of situations in which our hope in humanity has been defeated and it's this is that God is faithful even when the places people and ways appear otherwise You remember right back to how I started the message and I said that in in chapter 20, we read that the Spirit constrained, that he felt constrained by the Spirit to go. He knew that affliction and imprisonment was sure to follow. What did we just see in the last three chapters? Imprisonment and affliction. Yet we also see God's faithfulness in three ways, in places. As we have seen throughout Acts, whether it be prison cells and council chambers, God can use these things to draw glory back to himself. No situation or place is beyond the reach of God. As we think about the story of Jesus, think about it this way. Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Raised by a carpenter in Nazareth, he traveled throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria as a rabbi and then died a criminal's death on Skull Hill just outside of Jerusalem. That is God's faithfulness in places that seemed like he could do nothing. How about people? Well, let's look at Paul. Paul is rescued from death by this Roman, Claudius Lysias. The gospel reality, Pilate wiped his hands clean of Jesus' blood and the Jews crucified their Jewish Messiah. God is faithful in the unlikeliest of people. Or how about ways persecution, suffering. Paul speaks about his imprisonment. He speaks about shipwreck. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23b to 28. He says, I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and Again. own hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked, but besides everything else I face daily the per- pressure of my concern for all of the churches. Jesus, this was God the Father's way. Jesus died a criminal's death on the cross for us. Bronwyn read for us earlier Isaiah 53, verse 3, and she read down to 11. We'll get there. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Now what's incredible here is that the verses don't stop and we get down to verse 10 and 11 yet this is god's faithfulness in a way that seems can like counter to any way that we could see it happening yet it was the lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteousness servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. I don't know. Okay, listen, I don't know what it is that you personally are wrestling with right now. But here's what I do know, based on what we read here, is that God is faithful. And we know he is faithful because we can look to the gospel and see that as he was faithful, as Jesus hung on a cross, so he can be faithful and is faithful in your situation that whether or not you experience the good on this side of heaven or not, Jesus will return. Justice will come. Tears will be wiped away and we will spend eternity with our maker. That is the truth. So as we get beat down, may we look to Jesus who was beaten for us. As we are discouraged, may we look to Jesus who was here on this earth for you and for me because of the choices that we make continually. And as you feel like you're in a fight and as you watch the news, May we struggle together in believing that God is not done. That He's going to make it better. Because hear me, I don't know how else you live in this world and don't hold on to that. Right? Is this landing? You're all sort of like quiet. Is that like, or maybe it's landing so it is quiet in here. But like, do you feel that? I was speaking with a friend this past week, and him and his wife, 12 weeks into their pregnancy, experienced a miscarriage. And I'm sure many of us in this room know that pain. And I I, I drove to meet with him the other day, and he's like, we're holding on to the fact that, that God is loving, he's good, and he's in control as much as it feels so counter to believe those things right now. And for you, you, I'm sure, could share a story of what's going on in your life. It's like, where is God in the midst of this? Be honest about that. Because God can deal with your honesty. He was so honest about us that he sent his son to die for us. That's amazing. Let's pray. If you are sitting here today and you're struggling in the I don't know what's going to come. God, show up somewhere. Do something. I want to invite you to come to the front. And we have a people, a group of people that will be here to pray with you. If you're just struggling with a sin and you're like, I don't know how to get out of this. you, You can come too and let us pray for you. so important that we turn to God but that we also turn to one another for encouragement, support and comfort because here's what Satan likes to tell you you're alone but Satan's a liar you're not alone God is with you he's for you He's proven that on the cross. Three days later in the resurrection. So, as we sing the song that will be sung, you can come to the front. As I said, there'll be people here that would love to pray with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is challenging to know what to do with these things we read of about Paul. It seems so removed. Counsels and suffering and persecution, yet at the same time, God, we recognize that many of us are suffering under something. And so, God, we, we reach out to you because we know that, God, you say to us that, that you can be found and that you're not really that far off And so God, I pray for for those that are gathered here today. I believe that they're here for a reason and you have them here today for a particular purpose. Might you remind them that you're close and that you have done something for them that they could never do for themselves and that you suffered at the hands of sinful man to set us all free so that we can live understanding what is to come and it's... Ultimate restoration. And so God, may we hold fast to the the day, Jesus, when you will come back. God, it was the hope of our brothers and sisters who suffered under injustice in the South years ago that this life was not all that there is, that there was a life to be had in the future. And so God, may we hold fast to that too. May we not put our hope In people, but may we put our hope in you.
0: Thank you, Jesus. Amen.